0: The Chosen. You can watch it all for free on YouTube and its special app, thechosen.tv. I'm not getting paid for this announcement. It's really worth seeing. Um, I'm showing you that not just because it's a great show, but because that healing, believe it or not, is a window into the rest of Matthew chapter 9. So if you want to uh, grab your Bibles or if you want a pew Bible, it's page 789 is where we're at. It's actually a really good idea today to keep it open because I want to use this uh, episode, this first bit of Matthew 9 as a window into the rest of the chapter. Um, it's really interesting that Matthew was an eyewitness to this, and in that clip, by the way, he's the one on the roof with the tablet. Um, and yet, Matthew's account is the briefest between himself and Mark and Luke. This is the briefest account. There's no mentioning in Matthew's account of uh, the guy being lowered through the roof, which means that Matthew, I think, really wants to present this account, his account of this healing along with a string of miracles that come both before and after. And so there's actually common threads that come throughout this. Sometimes um, when we preach through a book, we'll focus in on one bit. But today I want to give you an overview of all of the healings in chapter 9. And this is also to help you be able to read it better for yourself. So we're going to look at these threads today. And the reason why we're doing this, not just because it helps you read Matthew 9 better, but because this healing is a window not only to the rest of the chapter, this healing and the threads in this chapter are actually a window into our world's greatest needs and what the only solution to these needs are and how we can receive it. Okay, so these threads that we're going to look at throughout this whole chapter actually has a lot to say to us here. Let me quickly pray and then we'll get into it. Lord Jesus, even as we watch that um, clip of you healing this paralytic man, we're amazed again at your power, your authority, as well as your compassion. And we want to be those who come before you with our needs. Many of us have many needs. The world certainly has many needs. We pray that today, as we meet you in the pages of the Bible, you might show yourself to us in Jesus' name. we pray. Amen. Okay, so here we go. Um, as I said, we're looking at the threads that link all of the healings in this chapter, and there are four themes that are in this healing. That's a window into the rest of the chapter. The first one is, of course, that Jesus Is with the nobodies, right? This paralyzed man, he was so in need of healing, and yet he couldn't even get an audience with Jesus because of the crowds. So only his friends had to lower him through the roof, according to Matthew. Sorry, according to Mark and Luke, he was a nobody. Now, of course, later on, we read um, Jesus calls Matthew, who was a tax collector. Who were tax collectors? Well, they were national traders, they were hated for their greed and exploitation. Again, a nobody. And then later on, we read um, in verse 18. Look at verse 18 again. While he was saying this, a synagogue leader came and knelt before Jesus and said, my daughter has just died, but come and put your hand on her and she will live. Now, you might be thinking, hang on, synagogue leader, that sounds important. That's not a nobody. Well, that's true, but a dead girl in that society was a nobody. Child mortality was pretty high, Right, Children died all the time, and especially women, girls especially, were just not very valued. Why should Jesus care about the girl of someone? And then verse 20, while Jesus was on his way, another nobody, just then a woman who had been subject to bleeding for 12 years, came up behind him and touched the edge of his cloak. She said to herself, if only I touch his cloak, I will be healed. Okay, this is another woman again in that society, but then an unclean woman at that. See, in the Old Testament law, in Jewish law, menstrual blood made a woman unclean for a period of time. See, while she was menstruating, she couldn't participate in community and worship. But this lady had been bleeding constantly for 12 years. She was an outsider. She was a bit like the leper we saw last week, completely outside of society. And then verse 27 and verse 32, you've got the blind and the mute. All right, verse 27, have a look there. As Jesus went on from there, two blind men followed him, calling out, Have mercy on us, son of David. Skip over to verse 32. As they were going out, a man who was demon-possessed and could not talk was brought to Jesus. All right, see, like last week, we looked at Jesus came down from the mountain, his Sermon on the Mount, and he was with who? He was with the lowest of the lows of society, the dregs of society. And this week, we're getting that picture again. Jesus is with the nobodies. Now, why does Jesus do this? Why does he want to hang around with the people that no one cares about? Well, in verse 12. So come back with me to verse 12. He's at the home of this Matthew, this tax collector. He's surrounded by other tax collectors and other rejects and other nobodies. What does Jesus say in verse 12? It's not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. But go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. For I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. All right, here's the reason why, huh? Here's the reason why. Jesus has come for those who are sick. Jesus has come because we need him. And so again, I want to remind you that if you are here and you are weighed down in any sense with brokenness, yours or other people's, or shame or guilt, that Jesus is calling you, especially you. He's come for you. And no matter where you are or how far gone you think you are, you are never too far gone for him. Because Jesus comes for the nobodies. Right, how about the next one? The physical and the spiritual. Now the key to the healing of that paralyzed man is, of course, the surprise. Right, and you got the surprise when we watched the clip and we read it earlier. I mean, Jesus sees his need. He's clearly in need of healing from being paralyzed but then he sees the faith of his friends and then rather than healing his body straight away, what does Jesus do? Here's the surprise. He says, son, your sins are forgiven. That is very surprising. Of course, Jesus does go on to heal his legs, but that's almost like the secondary thing, yeah? It's actually, he heals his legs in order to prove that he can do the greater thing, which is to forgive his sins. Now, that's really important. The fact that Jesus prioritizes The forgiveness, the spiritual side, the physical problems of all of Jesus' healings for the rest of the chapter all point to or are coupled with a spiritual problem. And I want to show you that. Now, this is a window into the rest of the chapter. That Matthew actually deliberately pairs physical problems with spiritual problems. Now, in the paralytic, and that's why I say this one is sort of a window into the rest, because in this first one... They're both together in the one episode. In the rest of the chapter, there'll be one physical and then a spiritual one following closely along with it. Let me show you. Um, The synagogue ruler's daughter. Her healing, or her being raised from the dead, is paired with the healing of the bleeding woman. The daughter is physical death, but the bleeding woman is actually a symbol of spiritual death. Remember what I said, that... In the the Old Testament law, right, Um, especially in the Old Testament law, the the symbolism of blood is very strong. Blood is life. So the loss of blood is death. And this woman who's constantly losing blood and unclean, it brought her a form of spiritual death because she was separated from the community and separated from God. Hers was not just a physical bleeding problem. It was a spiritual symbolism. And verse 22 is really interesting. Jesus is healing the bleeding woman and his words... Oops, I don't have this. Do I? No. His words... are: Look at verse 22. He says, Take heart, daughter. Your faith has healed you. Now, I want you to know that the word there for heal, right, is translating the word that also is translated in other places as save. Jesus is saying to her, your faith has saved you. Now, of course, he could mean physical healing, but again, I think he's pointing to a much bigger salvation, a much broader salvation than just physical salvation. Your faith has saved you, and again, he calls her daughter. Of course, which for her would have been huge because now she's restored spiritually in relationship with God. All right, so there's another pairing of physical and spiritual. But then um, the blind man in uh, the blind men, sorry, in verse 27, physical problems. Right, that's also paired with. The demon-possessed mute, which demon possession is a spiritual problem. You see what Matthew wants us to see? Physical and spiritual. They're actually greater than any physical need as a spiritual. one. We'll come back to that later on. That's the second thread. Uh, the third thread is this, faith. Like last week, but even clearer here in chapter 9, you're going to see that faith is the key to receive all that Jesus came to bring. So look how many times faith is mentioned. Verse 2, when Jesus saw their faith. Verse 22, he says, your faith has saved you. Verse 28, he says, do you believe, do you have faith that I'm able to do this? Verse 29, according to your faith, let it be done to you. And of course, there are times when the word faith isn't used, but it's there, right? I mean, Matthew, Jesus calls to him and Matthew immediately leaves everything to follow Jesus. That's called faith. The synagogue ruler who comes to Jesus for his daughter to raise the dead, that's faith. All right, so again, don't miss this thread running throughout these encounters that only those with faith receive. It's like the centurion we saw last week, the Gentile centurion, who had amazing faith that amazed even Jesus. And then the fourth and final thread is this. Opposition to Jesus begins to build and build and build and build. Um, In verses 3 to 4, remember, Jesus was reading the thoughts of the teachers of the law, the lawyers, because if you claim to forgive sins, well, you were blaspheming, unless, of course, you were God. And they were right that Jesus was claiming to forgive sins, but they were wrong about Jesus, of course, because He is God. right? But that was a big deal. Verse 11, After Jesus calls Matthew, he's having a dinner party at Matthew's house. They come up and say, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? They're not happy with that. Verse 24, it's not just the teachers of the law and the Pharisees, the crowds, they're laughing at Jesus. Because he said the dead daughter is just asleep. They don't really believe him. And then verse 34, Verse 34, Jesus, after he drives out the demons, the Pharisees say it is by the prince of demons that he drives out demons. Okay, you got their Opposition is going to build and build and build and build until, of course, finally Jesus gets crucified at the end of Matthew. But why? I mean, why is it that Jesus runs up to such opposition? Why do they people think that he's such a threat to them? Well, we get an explanation in this passage that we looked at. In the central part, when Jesus says... No one sews a patch of unshrunk cloth to an old garment, for the patch will pull away from the garment, making the tear worse. Neither do people pour new wine into old wineskins. If they do, the skins will burst, the wine will run out, and the wineskins will be ruined. No, they pour new wine into new wineskins, and both are preserved. Right? This is why he runs up to such opposition, because Jesus came to bring something so new. According to the illustration he gives, he is the new wine. He is the patch of unshrunk cloth. You try to fit him in an old wineskin, you try to sew him along into old clothes, and it simply won't work. All right, that was very, very true when you see Jesus in the midst of old Jewish religious categories. Like he just didn't fit. He was a mere man who claims to forgive sins. And, and he, he is a guy who could touch the unclean. And not only does he not become unclean, he actually makes them clean. They had no categories to process that kind of stuff. This guy who could dine with sinners, and in fact preferred to dine with sinners rather than the religious. This guy who could drive out demons so easily, but not be the prince of demons. You see, every turn they were trying to process Jesus as if he was an old wineskin, as if he was an old cloth, and he just didn't fit. And couldn't fit. Nothing in Jesus' world could contain the person that he is. And that caused so much offense, of course, that eventually he would get crucified for it. But I want to say it's the same with us today. Right? Jesus still offends. Jesus still offends. And he offends both the non-religious as well as the religious. See, Jesus offends the non-religious. Because you read enough about Jesus and you realize he cares more, not less, about God's template for human life and human flourishing, otherwise known as God's commandments and laws. Jesus cares more, not less, about them. Remember, he says, I've not come to abolish, but to fulfill the law and the prophets. Now, obeying God's laws isn't for a way for us to earn his favor, but God's laws do show us God's blueprint for flourishing human life. And these standards and laws are actually opposite to the world. And that's why he will offend the non-religious. You see, Jesus shows us that... I mean, just look at the Sermon on the Mount, okay? Jesus shows us that God cares deeply about honesty. He cares deeply about sexual purity. He cares deeply about faithful heterosexual marriage. He cares about anger. He cares about judgmentalism. He cares about pride. Okay, These are commandments. These are boundaries that Jesus upholds that our world finds offensive. And maybe you're sitting here and maybe that's a little bit offensive to you too. Right? Jesus offends the non-religious, but he also offends the religious. Because here's the thing, right? Religion will use these standards... Right, And we'll turn it the wrong way and use it against people. Do you know what I mean when I say that? Like religion, and this is how often people perceive the church, right, Christians? Right, You Christians, Right, you give us the impression that you're holier than thou. You Christians give the impression that unless you clean yourself up, God won't accept you. Isn't that what religion does? It gives the impression that you've got to clean yourself up And then if you're good enough, maybe God will accept you. Of course, that's wrong, isn't it? Because the the way of Jesus is not like that at all. The way of Jesus isn't judgmental and excluding. Jesus is far more gentle and loving for those who fail and those who don't fit. Jesus does not say, clean yourself up and then I'll accept you. Jesus says, hey, I accept you because of what I've done for you. Now come. And let's see how I can remake your life. And that offends the religious. All right? Okay, those four threads, if you've not really been paying attention until now, now it's the time to really pay attention, because we're going to see what we learn from Matthew chapter 9. And the first is, of course, our need is greater than meets the eye. Now, I want to be careful here. I'm not saying that behind every specific illness is a specific sin, that caused that illness, that somehow the sick person is at fault. Right? That's not what Jesus says, and that's not what we're to get out of this. Jesus' ministry is pointing to a a sort of a, a group problem, a collective problem with humanity as a whole, that behind all of our physical brokenness is a deeper spiritual brokenness, that sin is all of our greatest problems, that forgiveness, that's what we really, really need in life. Okay? See, sin is a little bit like cancer. I have a friend, um, he's got an inoperable brain tumor. A couple of months ago, I saw him and I said, how do you feel? And he said to me, you know, mostly I can't even tell that I've got this brain tumor. Right? He's not able to tell. It doesn't feel any different. But the reality is, there's a tumor in his brain and it's probably one day going to kill him unless God does a miracle. That's what sin is like. Not something you necessarily see on the surface, but it's there in all of us. Now, you might object to that and go, well, I don't accept Jesus' diagnosis. I'm not that bad. The people I know aren't that bad. Well, you know, um, this happens a lot. You know when a celebrity or public person does something bad or naughty, um, maybe Will Smith, you know, slapping Chris Rock or something, often um, you read them saying things like, you know, oh, I made a mistake but this isn't the real me. You know, that's often the excuse, right? This isn't the real me. But I kind of want to turn it around and say, well, what if that is the real you? (laughs) Like, why do we assume that when you do something bad, that's not the real you? Because Jesus would say, it's actually out of the overflow of our hearts that our mouths speak or our hands strike or whatever it is, that a tree bears bad fruit because the tree is bad. You see, What if we're not actually good people who sometimes do sinful things? It's just as valid. In fact, our track records will probably show we're more likely to be sinful people who actually sometimes do good things. Do you see what I mean? Maybe Jesus' diagnosis isn't that far off. Maybe it's true that behind all of our physical needs, our social needs, is a much deeper spiritual need, which leads to the next one. Because our greatest need is sin, sin. Well, only dealing with that will do. And that's what Matthew 9 teaches us. See, we've already seen that human solutions, even religion, maybe especially religion, can't solve it. See, who Jesus is and what he's come to bring is far bigger than religion. And it's also far bigger than non religion or non religious. You know, our world is into a lot of secular self help. What's well, bigger than that as well? A couple of years ago, um, a plumber found that there was a small leak uh, seeping outside of uh, on the side of the, the tap where our bathtub was. Um, and we thought, oh, I'll well, we just patch it up and stuff like that. But he said, look, you know what? Um, I'm going to have to check behind the tap because it's, it's possible that the pipe behind the tiles in the wall space is leaking, in which case sealing up that bit around the tap isn't going to help. And that's exactly what he found. And we had to like, do this big, big, big job to seal up the pipe behind the wall space. Right? That's a little bit like our problem, that politics and education, religion, medicine, science, they're all sort of the stopgap measures, when our problem is actually much deeper, much bigger. Our problem is sin. Our problem is that as people, individually and together, we've turned against God, and we're rebelled against Him, or we're alienated from Him. And nothing can solve that, you see, except the blood of Jesus. That it would take Jesus' death as a sin substitute to solve that problem. You see, if our biggest problem isn't that great, then honestly, we were actually saying to Jesus, you wasted your time. You didn't need to come and die. If education, politics, whatever, can solve our problems, then Jesus really went a little bit too far. But if it took the death of God's only Son... To solve our problems, they show us how big the problem is and how solutions that we have can't meet that need. Now again, if you're not a follower of Jesus, this might be new to you or maybe it's actually impacting you for the first time to see that the problem is so great and that's why Jesus needs to be the solution. Would you check Jesus out further? Would you find out more? It's a bit late to come to Alpha now if you haven't come already, right? But when we run Alpha again, again this year, I hope that you can... Come along to that and then thirdly the kind of faith that receives okay jesus came for all but not all received him again not everyone was healed not everyone was saved only faith receives and that's what we see again and again in these chapter in these chapters that faith is the way you receive all that jesus has come to bring now that can sound scary and that can sound discouraging yeah i read that and i'm like hang on but what if I don't have that kind of faith? You know, the faith of the centurion man we saw last week, the faith of this bleeding woman, the faith of the synagogue ruler. What if I, don't have, if I don't have it? Does that mean I will miss out on all that Jesus wants to give and bring? Well, I want you to hold that question for a moment because I think sometimes we misunderstand faith and that could be a problem. I don't know what kind of, um, what kind of computer games, if you play any gaming that you like. I particularly like RPGs, okay? I particularly like the games like Zelda and Skyrim and all those kind of stuff. And with RPGs, but even with like, you know, um, yeah, the, the kind of massively online ones, you get stat blocks, right? You know about stat blocks? This health, this mana, right? Now, sometimes I think we think about faith like that, like a stat block, like, like your health bar or your mana bar. Right? and And sometimes... You know, some people have more of it, some people have less of it, and if you level up, maybe it'll grow, and, and we think of it like that, and, and, if you, and, and if I haven't got enough, then that's, you know, that's a problem, um, but you have more of that than me, and faith is a bit like that, some, sort of like a, a stat bar. But see, that's a really impersonal and wrong way of thinking about faith. It's not just something that some have more of, some have less of, and that's it. See, biblical faith is ultimately a relational thing. Do you know that? It's a relational thing. Because the word faith, you can actually—it's it, it, really the same word that means dependence, or reliance, or, or trust. You see, once you understand faith as dependence and trust and reliance, of course, the next question is: depend on who or what? Trust in who? Rely on what? Okay. See, faith is a relational thing. Who you or what you have faith in is the most important question. You see, you can depend on something unreliable, and no matter how much faith you've got, it's worthless. See why I say faith is not just like a stat bar? right? You've got to have faith in something or someone reliable. And if you do, even a little bit of faith is enough, isn't it? The second thing about faith is this. When it comes to faith in Jesus, there is a bit of a paradox. That faith, and this is why, again, if you think about it as a stat block, it doesn't really make sense, because faith is often strongest in the weakest. That's the paradox. And you see that all throughout the Bible. And the reason why it's the case with faith in Jesus that often faith is the strongest in the weakest is, of course, because of the situation that we're in. And because of the kind of people we are. And because of the kind of Savior that He is. If you understand those things, you understand why faith is strongest in the weakest. When I was uh, 18 years old, I nearly drowned. And I had to be rescued from a, a riptide by a couple of surfers because I was swimming nowhere near the flags. So, always swim between the flags. I learned the hard way. I nearly drowned. And I, and I had to get these, these surfers, had to find me as I was kind of Um, yelling for help and trying to tread water for about half an hour. And I was like, you know, it wasn't going to last for maybe much longer. They found me and they came up next to me. You know, the first thing they said to me when they came up was, grab onto our surfboard and don't try to swim. They said, don't try to swim. Don't try to help yourself. Just grab on and let us swim you to shore. Right? Which I was relieved to hear about. But it's because, you know what, if you try to do it, you might actually be making things harder. What you need to do in that situation is completely rely on your rescuer. And that's actually what faith is like. Faith in Jesus, at least. Right? When you understand the situation you're in, the kind of person you are and the kind of savior that he is, you realize that we can contribute nothing. And actually, Jesus shows himself to be strongest when we are at our weakest. And it's actually when we are at our weakest that we really understand what it is to have him swim us all the way to shore. You see, you might be feeling like right now things aren't going very well, that you're desperate and weak. You feel like Jesus is all you've got. And I know if you've been through, and I've been through those situations, and if you're in it right now, it's really painful, isn't it, to feel weak and vulnerable, to feel like you have nothing except Jesus. But I want to also say it's also in those times that's the best for your faith. It's painful But you will understand what it means when Jesus is all you need. Because right now, maybe Jesus is all you got. And last of all, faith can grow. All right? Faith doesn't stay static. It's possible to have more faith or less faith. So how does faith grow? Don't we all want to know that? If you're a follower of Jesus, don't you want to grow your faith? Yeah? Well, here's how it grows. See, the common answer, and probably you're thinking, okay, well, faith grows, or faith is like a muscle, right? And muscles need working out and grows with resistance, so maybe faith grows through suffering, through adversity. And that's kind of what I was saying just then. It's true, but I kind of want to say it's only half true. It's only half true that through adversity and suffering, faith grows. Because here's the thing, right? Adversity can also weaken faith. Adversity can also destroy faith. Suffering can have the opposite effect. And maybe, if you're honest with yourself, you're here because suffering has actually not brought you closer to God, it's brought you further away from God. Now, the reason why it's not an automatic, like, faith is a muscle, you work the muscle, it'll grow stronger. The reason why faith doesn't just work like that, it's only half true, is remember what I said right at the beginning about faith? Faith is relational. Faith is relational. Which means faith will only grow in adversity if it brings you closer to the one you have faith in. You got that? It all depends on the relationship. But it's also possible that when you're suffering and going through hard times, that you turn away from God. Maybe you're turning away from God in tough times because you're upset at Him for allowing it. Or you think that He doesn't care. Or he feels distant and so you believe your feelings rather than believe his promises. Now, if any of those things or other things are true and you find yourselves turning away from God in suffering, you know what? Your faith won't grow just because you're suffering. It'll weaken. But if in the midst of adversity, it causes you to lean closer. And maybe like I said last week, quoting Tim Keller and his cancer struggles, he's praying more and he's praying more earnestly and desperately if you do that in suffering. If it causes you to cherish his promise more or it causes you to look at your heart and you repent of sin more and you realize how much you need your brothers and sisters all around you and so you rely on the faith community more. You know what? When we're going through tough times, I know You've been there, I've been there. It's easier to withdraw, isn't it? You feel a bit of shame or that people don't understand. You want to isolate yourself. And so often instinctively we, we move further away from community, further away from regular fellowship, Sundays, CGs. But if rather than doing that, we do the opposite, we realize we actually, at the point where I'm suffering, I need my brothers and sisters more I need to tell them, hey, pray for me more, even though it's hard to share, makes you vulnerable. But if you, if you do that, and all of the things I just talked about, then yes, your faith will grow. All right? It will grow. And there is nothing more precious to have more of in the ups and downs of life. And look, if you've only been a Christian for, say, 10 years or less, may I encourage you within this community... Go and talk to someone who's been a Christian for 20, 30, 40, 50 years. They will tell you, right, that the the spiritual life, the Christian life is is a marathon and it's a hard marathon. But you know what's so invaluable about about talking to people like that? Is that you realize that through the ups and downs of their lives and ask them, tell me your story, tell me about the tough times you've had, right? Feel free to ask me, okay, I'm not quite... How long have I been a Christian? I've been a Christian for 30, 35, almost 35 years, all right? Right? And you go through the ups and downs, but when you talk to them, you ask them, you realize that you know what's kept them going? You know what is the the one thing, right, that they will want you to have more of if you've only been a Christian for 5, 10 years, right, and you've still got the rest of your life with all the ups and downs of life? They'll want you to have more faith because faith is precious like that. It's the one thing you will need to get you through life. Because when you have more faith, you're actually having more of Jesus. And that's what's wonderful about it. Let's get the band up. We're going to pray and we're going to sing. Lord Jesus, we pray that as we come face to face with you in the book of Matthew in these chapters that what we will grow to love and appreciate and trust in more and more is you. I pray that people who are finding faith a struggle, whether they've not yet come to know you personally and they're just working through whether or not they can trust in you to save them, to give their lives to you, to follow you, or whether they're followers of Jesus and faith is just hard at the moment, or even people here who are going quite well, but Lord, we know that our lives Take unexpected, difficult turns. I pray that above all, I swear you would help us to be a community that has more faith. Living, breathing, beautiful faith. Give us that, we pray, by your Holy Spirit and through your word. Amen.